Welcome to the Neville on Fire podcast. Neville Goddard was a 20th century spiritual teacher who offered a profound message. Your creative imagination is the very source of reality. As we learn to use it properly, life becomes intelligible and rewarding. Join your host, Ed, to explore our most valuable asset, the human imagination. This is episode 12, Hypnosis versus Conscious Self-Persuasion. I feel the topic of today's episode is especially timely. You might have noticed that the dominating narrative in the popular media has actually subsided and has been replaced now with a new dominating narrative, as the first one is losing credibility in the eyes of the public. This is a familiar pattern. It brings right to the fore the question of the degree to which we have control over our own mental sovereignty, our own belief systems, our own individuality, and our own lives. The idea of a dominant narrative was exposed in a book as far back as 1988 called Manufacturing Consent. In this episode, I'm going to discuss a series of related concepts, hypnosis, mass hypnosis and mind control, auto-hypnosis, self-suggestion, self-persuasion, and then how these relate to affirmations as we've been discussing them and our exploration of Neville's ideas. First of all, let's talk about this notion of society at large and individuals as a result being in a state of sleep and it's characterized as hypnotic sleep. Does Neville have this idea? Well, he doesn't go into it in depth, uh, at least not in any discussion that I'm aware of, but he does make several references to this person or that person being sound, sound asleep. And in this connection, one of his students uh, related an incident where she was uh, having an interaction with her husband and saw by the look in his eye that he was saying to her sort of uh, subconsciously, I'm in a profound sleep and don't you dare try to wake me, which goes really to the heart of the matter that I'm trying to express here. I often refer to fourth-wave literature, and I'll do so again now, uh, the book In Search of the Miraculous. In the discussion between the author and Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff explained to him that the people, they were sitting at a cafe, generally speaking, people at large walking along the street and so on and having discussions, are in such a state of sleep that they don't, they forget themselves. They they become the uh, political argument. They become the vociferous emotional argument and lose all trace of themselves psychologically. In fact, he's so categorical in his description of humanity at large, saying that people are simply machines. So when the author Ospensky tries to object to this, saying that there are different uh, types of people, more awake, they can be artists and writers and so on, Gurdjieff rejects the whole thing and says, no, uh, what each of these persons is that you're describing, they are as a result of their own mechanicalness. They don't, they're not exercising conscious choice. Well, eventually the students try to put into practice his admonitions to observe themselves and study themselves throughout the, the course of the day, and they come back reporting their results, and Gurdjieff says, well, you've missed the most important thing. You missed the fact that you didn't remember yourself. You didn't, you weren't consciously aware of yourself in the moment. 
in other contexts, the, the same teacher, Gurdjieff, talks about results that you might get, but then he denigrates them as merely self-hypnosis, merely self-suggestion, which is interesting. Gurdjieff himself, before he embarked on this career that we're reading about, uh, had been a hypnotist. That was his profession. So he understood hypnosis profoundly. Gurdjieff deplores the fact that humanity at large is in a state of hypnotic sleep. Equally, he deplores the fact that his students might be going out uh, during the day and carrying out an exercise in self-observation and yet forgetting themselves the whole time. And equally, he deplores the idea of employing self-suggestion in a mechanical way without invoking self-consciousness. Is Gurdjieff correct in his assessment of society at large, his assessment of people who are trying to take control of their own well-being? by uh, using mental assertions, and yet doing so in a rather mechanical and unconscious way. Well, I've got a small library of books on auto-hypnosis, which had quite a run back in the 70s. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that those authors were unaware of and ignore the idea of consciousness, as Gurdjieff was discussing it, and simply perpetuate the popular notion of consciousness, which is conscious thinking. Well, the idea of conscious thinking is a contradiction in terms, and I'm following here the writing of Rolf Alexander, whom I quoted back in episode one. Alexander himself also deplores the idea that so many people can be drawn, millions of people can be drawn by propaganda and basically mass hypnosis into war, for example. And if we compare his program of auto-hypnosis with the programs of study in that small library of about six different authors that I just mentioned, you'll find that it's Alexander and Gurdjieff who set themselves apart by pointing to an experience of consciousness that is a very specific and vivid practice of self-awareness that you have to be taught. It has to be received by instruction. I think it's right to point to the fact that each of these sources, Rolf Alexander and Gurdjieff, are drawing on what we can call an esoteric tradition. Each of them characterizes people in their habitual state as being in a state of sleep, and each one insists on coming to awareness of being, just as Neville does in, for example, the book called At Your Command. So you might be thinking of a counter-argument here along the lines of, well, Gurdjieff, after all, was speaking back in 1915, and Rolf Alexander himself was publishing in the mid-1950s. So these guys are out of date. Why don't you check something more modern? So as sort of a spot check, I ordered Hypnosis Without Trance by James Tripp, published in 2021. The author says, and I'm here I'm quoting, people don't have perceptual access to any type of objective reality, only a subjective reality shaped by a belief system. Well, that's in the first chapter, and in the entire rest of the book, I could not find any reference to the idea of actually coming to conscious awareness of being. So in summarizing what I've covered so far, I think we can see that the authors who are truly concerned with objective self-awareness are also acutely aware of the problem of mass hypnosis, mass psychosis, where whole populations are captured and swayed by propaganda systems. So there, Neville, in his admonition not to take all of the newspaper headlines at face value, but to have a disciplined denial, this thread connects him with Rolf Alexander, as well as to the message of Gurdjieff. All of these sources are concerned with individual conscious development, both for personal development and for the sake of humanity as a whole. 
this discussion connects back to the challenges of freeing oneself from the harmful effects of institutions, as we were discussing in episode three. What characterizes these mass programs of hypnosis and even mass psychosis and induce people to leave behind common sense? Well, any survey of the history of the authorities that have tried to investigate mind control methods shows that these authorities, whether in the East or in the West, have discovered the truisms that it depends on inducing the feeling of debilitation, dependency, and fear itself, and most particularly isolation. So ask yourself, how have these things been used in the most recent dominant narrative? Well, let's turn our attention now to self-hypnosis and affirmations in such a way that we can extricate ourselves from this nightmare of institutional control and at the same time realize the life we should be living that is free, prosperous, creative, enlightened. Well, we've already seen that we don't want to be subject to hypnotic programming, whether that is uh, on the scale of global agendas or even doing affirmations in a way that does not incorporate conscious awareness of being. So self-realization along the lines of the exercise that I had suggested in episode one is paramount. You're dividing yourself in two. You have a conscious faculty uh, that is pure awareness of being that is in the moment of the exercise subjecting the rest of you, so to speak, that is the subconscious to deliberately selected affirmations and directions. So you might well ask, what's the difference between doing that and simply following the instructions of any of those authors that I had mentioned before? Well, the key difference, as I keep insisting, is instead of the ordinary auto-hypnosis and self-suggestion, we're trying to employ conscious self-persuasion. We're trying to develop the conscious faculty and thereby not to pursue just surface-level readjustments, but to affect a whole radical change. It seems clear that in the progression of desires, that Neville explains. He's aiming towards an ultimate radical reconstitution of the person's psyche, a reorientation towards the divine. And it's the same thing with Gurdjieff. He wants a conscious evolution. And same thing with Alexander. Rolf Alexander says, at the present time, most of us pass our lives in a state of hypnotic trance. To escape the slavery imposed by our subconsciousness, we must become conscious. There's no escape from sleep save through awakening. This may be accomplished through a natural process of self-evolution. Well, so far we've been discussing mass hypnotic sleep seen at the societal level and induced by institutional programs, global agendas, dominant narratives. We also discussed at the level of individual study that we really want to incorporate the practice of awareness of being into any exercise of self-hypnosis. I think that is the distinguishing feature of Neville and similar thinkers from the rest of the whole self-help movement. That conscious possession of oneself, that's going to make the difference to enable us to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves and put us on a path towards self-change and even change of society at large, while at the same time no longer being susceptible to mass hypnotic and propagandistic control programs. Well, for the rest of this podcast episode, I want to examine what is hypnosis really all about, and how does it fit into Neville's worldview? If you look into the phenomenon of hypnosis, you can find all kinds of examples where these people demonstrate things that are scarcely, if at all, within the capacity of conventional scientists to explain. So people are burned by suggestion when a room temperature object is 
held against their skin. Conversely, they can walk across hot coals or display feats of superhuman strength. I've seen several accounts now of the subject not being able to see a certain person following the suggestion when that person is right there in the room participating in the proceedings. And there's no shortage now of descriptions of psi phenomena. My point in bringing all this up is to show that once the normal waking faculty of a person is uh, abated, put into abeyance through suggestion, and the interpretive faculty of that person is manipulated by the operator, then the person starts to live in a world, starts to create a world based on that very suggestion. Now, how is all this possible? Many authors, including Rolf Alexander, for example, and James Tripp, whom I mentioned, uh, they use sort of an expanded scientific explanation. Alexander says there are two aspects of reality. One aspect is the colorless, lifeless, soundless, elemental reality of physics. And James Tripp, again, an expert in hypnosis, says, I want you to know, he's quoting, that there are no colors in the real world. There are no fragrances in the real world. There's no beauty, no ugliness. Out there beyond the limits of our perceptual apparatus is the erratically ambiguous and ceaselessly flowing quantum, that is, the quantum field. The interesting thing is that each of these experts in hypnosis is referring to a world where there's the mind and then there's the external physical reality of the quantum field upon which the mind carries out some sort of action to produce the reality that we perceive. Well, here's where Neville sets himself apart, because instead of subscribing to a view that still depends on the physical universe outside the mind, he says, no, the entire thing is mental. He's embracing that principle from the Hermetica, where the whole universe is mental in nature, it's psychological in nature. So even seeming hard physical realities are nothing more than mental constructs. They do not depend on a physical elemental reality. The point that I wanted to bring to your attention in this discussion of hypnosis is a very encouraging thing. It's the fact that the world, the seeming physical external world, is really so malleable, so subject to the belief system of the individual, even if that flies in the face of what is considered to be accepted science. There doesn't seem to be any limit. You could say, well, we all need to eat. No, even there you could point to the example of that famous nun who's mentioned in the autobiography of a yogi who subsists on nothing but a wafer once every few days and is in perfect health. It really seems to be unknown what the limits are. And indeed, Neville says, I do not know what the limits are, if any, of the human imagination. At one point, Neville says, well, maybe the scientists one day will be able to explain what I'm talking about here and demonstrate it using scientific method. But in the meantime, he's ahead of them in offering an explanation. At least it's consistent and it has explanatory power. It explains all of these extraordinary manifestations in uh, hypnosis and other uh, psychic phenomena. Namely, it all comes back to the person's belief system. So let me try to summarize what we covered today. We are led on sort of a journey of realization. So that means in successive steps of coming to self-awareness and doing the exercises of self-suggestion, we are not going to be the hypnotic subjects of other people. Rather, we're going to be using self-administered, conscious self-persuasion. And then to escape from the detrimental influence of all negative suggestion from institutions, both large and small. And finally, to realize the freedom of choice that we really have that is demonstrated in all the extraordinary effects of the phenomenon of hypnosis. Well, taking all of that into account, 
we should have much better confidence in our ability to pursue and realize our own goals. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the show notes and subscribe to the Neville on Fire podcast. 